President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor and also a registered representative for Side Fund Services. I should note our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We have a really interesting show today. We have two guests. Uh, first part of the program, we're talking with Garth Friesen, who's a principal at Triple I Capital Management, a hedge fund with approximately $4 billion of assets under management. He's located in my hometown where I grew up in, in Boca Raton, Florida. Looking forward to talking with Garth here on the program the first part the second half of the show we'll be talking with jason gerlock he's the ceo of sunrise capital partners another alternative asset management firm we've been having a lot of these alternatives focused discussions uh you know right as people start to feel like the markets are getting high it's sort of interesting to hear what are people doing in in the alternatives crowd i think in, in a lot of different ways uh garth welcome to our program thanks for joining us today Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be with you. Uh, let's before we get into some of the, the thoughts on the markets or in asset classes, let's try to explore your background a little bit. Um, maybe describe for our, our listeners um, before you got to um, you know Triple uh, I Capital Management, uh, just your your general background and, and your different experiences. Sure. Uh, so I, jo- I joined the um, got into the business back in the mid '90s. I, I started at uh, Merrill Lynch in in London, England, where I was a interest rate swap trader. Back when we had a number of different currencies, they used to have different uh, different traders for each currency. So I was a swap trader for uh, a couple years um, at Merrill, and I moved over to uh, UBS, also in London, where I started trading uh, proprietary trading. Um, most of the focus has been in the fixed income markets, although in the last 18 years or so, when I've been at III, we've migrated to a number of different strategies. Um, you know, so I'd say our uh, our expertise is in fixed income arbitrage or relative value uh, fixed income, uh, but we've also, uh, in the last you know decade or so, gotten into the, the relative value credit business and also the tail hedging business. So we've we're a multi asset class uh, manager. Um, and we've been in business for about nineteen since nineteen eighty two. So one of the one of the older funds in the area. Interesting. Have you always been in, in Boca Raton? No, I actually grew up on the west coast of Canada, which is uh, a long way from Boca Raton. Uh, went went to school on the um, east coast where I did my MBA. I did my undergrad um, uh, also at the University of Western Ontario. I did my MBA there, and then was recruited to uh, down to Wall Street uh, following my MBA. So I've um, you know, I started on the West Coast, a little stint in Europe, and uh, now somehow found my way to Florida. Very nice. No, Boca is a, a great place. It was a great place to grow up, and I'm I'm heading to Canada soon. I might have to ask your your take on the West Coast there. Um, I've got I'm joined. Uh, we got Professor Siegel, who's my co-host, to call in here um, for some brief market commentary before we dig in more with Garth. Professor, thanks uh, for joining us for for a few comments here. Yeah. Well, what's happening? Well, first of all, I don't think we really have to worry about the French election. I don't think the extreme right and left are both going to be one and two. So I think they're finally going to, even if Le Pen wins, it'll consolidate around the middle. I don't consider the French election 
a risk. Um, it's it's the same old, same old. It, you know, Mnuchin says we're going to have complete and uh, tax reform, and uh, it's going to come soon, and the market rallies 170 points. And, um, but is that really in the cards or not? Uh, we had some pretty good forward guidance, actually, um, in some of the industrials today, which is uh, encouraging because we've often been beating on the current bottom line and then, you know, lower guidance going forward. Uh, one still has to remember that the strong gains in S&P are predicated on energy, and energy did sink last, you know, this week. And, uh, you know, whether we're going to get um, the earnings in that energy sector uh, up there or not depends on, on the price of uh, oil. Also, I, I still am always disturbed, and, you know, when I hear Trump say we're going to bring U.S. Steel back, we're going to bring the dairy farmers back, we're going to go back to, you know, the, the time of the 1950s, um, uh, you know, when he meets with these corporate executives uh, failing to realize what direction our new economy is going. But nonetheless, corporate tax reform uh, as, uh, as well as uh, regulation reform is still the main force behind the markets. Yeah, it's hard to know when Trump positions all these things, right? We know he thought he was going to call China currency manipulator day one, and he's now just using that in negotiating positions. It's hard to pin him down on what yeah. he really wants to do. I mean, he says corporate tax reform, and we all know he that, that seems to be where we're going. We just got to see it actually happen. Yeah, oh, and, and, you know, and, and the question is, are we going back to the Affordable Care Act first? Uh, you know, the truth is it didn't buy many dollars. And then there's the, the whole question about is it going to be revenue neutral or not. We had a few economists that just said just cut the taxes and let's just see. You know, cut the taxes and see what happens to the 10-year. You know, if the 10-year uh, bond thinks it's, it's too expansionary and goes up, uh, then you're going to have to make adjustments. I mean, actually, that's what happened under Reagan. We, we, we cut taxes and uh, we did get some growth, but then we had to add some back because it got a little too strong. So in some ways, maybe maybe we should just simplify, cut the taxes, forget about revenue neutrality, uh, look at the ten year and see uh, see what it's telling us. But uh, uh, that's down that's down the road. Sure. Any other? Uh, uh, well, we have here a few seconds. Any other closing thoughts on on the week? No, no. I mean, I I think that uh, you know we we're we're caught in the same sort of thing. We're going to get a, a poor GDP number for first quarter uh, next week. It's going to be a half a percent. That's one reason, actually, some of the beats are actually fairly good that uh, given uh, that we're going to have less than 1% GDP in the first quarter. This quarter does look like it's going to be three and a half, um, but still nothing more than two for the year unless we get a real energetic uh, infrastructure program, which, again, is uh, somewhere out there, but uh, no one knows where. All right, Professor. Well, thanks for joining us for some comments. Uh, have a good weekend here. Thanks, Jeremy. Bye. Uh, so Professor, I should just note, is a, a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree, uh, part of full disclosure there. Um, so, Garth, coming back to you. Um, so, Interesting that your background on on the hedge fund side, one of the earliest uh, or sort of longer serving track records here. Um, tell us a little bit more about you know I, I know you just came out with a, a or you're about to come out with a new book. Maybe uh, tease out the, the the coming publication. What you're trying to focus on in, in your new book? Yeah, so it's a um, a book that I've been working on for the last year, and um, 
it's kind of got an interesting title. It's called Bite the Ass Off a Bear, Getting In and Standing Out on a Hedge Fund Trading Floor. And what it's really about is, you know, uh, uh, I get asked a lot of times, um, you know, how I got into the industry, how I got into the business. And, you know, it's really targeted to college-level kids uh, who are interested in a trading career, but A, don't really know um, how to get in, um, and B, you know, what are really the skill sets that you need once you do manage to find um, your way into the into the industry. And I think what I try to do is dispel some of the um, common conceptions that people have about life as a trader. And it's, you know, obviously there's uh, a need for quantitative skills, and some of those have changed over the years of exactly what's needed. But I think a lot of people don't under or underestimate the the need for an IQ, not or an EQ, not just an mm. IQ. Yeah. And you know there really is a lot of uh, soft skills that are required when you get on a trading floor. And you know the the, the book's title actually came from uh, a presentation that I was at when I first started at Merrill. The, you can imagine a room full of you know MBA grads, all really keen, ready to start their uh, trading experience. And one of the MDs walked into the presentation room and said. You know, look around. You know, people to your left, to the right. Fifty percent of you are going to be gone in five years, and ninety percent of you are going to be gone in ten years. And you know, it was a pretty amazing stat. And of course, all of us at that point, you know, in our mid twenties, think, "Well, I feel sorry for the other you know, fifty right. to ninety percent of everybody else uh, who's going to get kicked out." But it, it it turns out that attrition rates in the industry really are that high, and it's it's hard to stay in. And you know, the book talks a little bit about uh, what people can do. Um, as I mentioned, once you get in, but you know that that doesn't mean that you've your career has developed. It's a, have to take a long approach to it, and what people can do to be a survivor and not be part of that attrition that's so high. Yeah, no, you said something interesting that I, I, I'd like to explore a little bit. So you talked about it's not just your IQ, it's your EQ, and we have the rise of the machines, the the uh, artificial intelligence, and how much of it is purely quantitative, how much of it is. Um, subjective. I mean, I'm curious for your own firm, how much do you think your models, you know, high level without revealing state secrets here, but how much do you think you guys think about investing quants, tech people, machines versus your true subjective, we're going to just get a gut feel of where the market's going? Yeah, well, I think un- undoubtedly the industry is going more quantitative and and you, you certainly see that. Um, you know, you see that in, in, in your side of the business that, uh, you know, with what, what you do in terms of the smart beta ETFs. And, and you're also seeing it on the, on the hedge fund side where, you know, we have access to great programmers. We have access to great um, systems, great technology. And I think just with, and with the incorporation of big data, you know, you certainly have to have, I think, in any um, strategy, and we're involved in quantitative strategies, which is not necessarily the same as, um, systematic strategies, like a lot of the markets that we deal in, are still over-the-counter markets. We we can't, um, you know, click a button or write a program to automate absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. So, but but there are elements of the business which are growing pretty well um, that are purely quantitative, and I think um, that's driven uh, both a by performance and. Uh, B by what investors want to see. You know, it, it's true, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I, I talk a little bit about this in the in the book too. Is that there still is, from an investing perspective, a lot of human error that takes place. Like, there's no way that any one person or even one team can analyze all the data that's out there to come to the best decision. So clearly, quantitative uh, support is is necessary. But 
um, you know, going back to your original question, you know, outside of that small segment of the world that is purely quantitative, you know, there still is a need for teams. There still is a need for uh, dialogue. There still is a need for uh, explaining strategies to uh, investors. And so the IQ versus EQ component, the, there still is a in, a, in a lot of different firms, um, you know, the need to be able to get along with people, to understand sure. people, to communicate. And, you know, you're not trading in a corner office somewhere, you know, just with a computer, right? There's uh, there, there still is that need for relationships in this business, which I think uh, gets overshadowed sometimes with um, all the talk of these purely quantitative strategies. It's a business. It's a people business at the end of the day, right? You still and markets are moved by people, too. Yeah you, yeah, you still need to market your products. You still need to sell your products. You still need to hire people. So, um, you know, the business is, I think, always going to have that element, um, even as we do migrate more and more to quantitative strategies. So as you think about the cross-asset classes that you guys try to add value in, I mean, is there some, where would you say your your biggest edges are? Do you think it's, uh, it's you, talk, you talk about maybe trading different things from equities, currencies, interest rates, um, is there a place that you find that you're adding the most value? Yeah, I'd say on the interest rate side is where we've, we've had the most experience, and that's really what we've been doing since 1982. It's relative value fixed income. Uh, we didn't get into the credit side of the business until 2005. Um, and so really for the majority of our uh, firm's history, we've been in just those two markets, fixed mm-hmm. income and credit. The migration to the uh, multi-asset class was really when we started doing um, tail hedge type products. We we had launched, um, you know, I, it's more luck than skill as often is in this business. We managed to launch a uh, short credit fund in 2007, very timely. Well, wow. um, and that had then that migrated into um, a, a more multi-asset class approach. And, you know, the, the tail hedging business is very interesting, uh, and, and you know, you've. Uh, you know, it's, it's also timely. You hear more and more people talking about the top of the market and what do I do to protect myself. You know, it's not just individuals that need to uh, answer that question. It's institutions, and you know, institutions are always looking for uh, better ways to try to get that you know called left tail or downside exposure. Yeah. And what we've been working on are different uh, mandates for institutional investors to try to provide that. You know, just take an example of just like if you were. The, the simple way that people get uh, exposure is just buying and rolling S&P puts or buying VIX, right, or buying VIX futures. You can't really buy the VIX, but buying VIX futures and rolling them. And that's just such an expensive proposition for most people. You know, I was just looking at, at some numbers today, and you know, the, the strategy that would involve just buying VIX futures and rolling them, you know, popularized by, I guess, the VXX in, in ETF space, you know, that that's already down 33% this year. And the VIX is actually up yeah. right, a small amount. And so, you know, it's very expensive to have traditional tail hedging strategies in place um, just because they're not sustainable. Nobody can withstand that type of loss um, every quarter, every year, while they're waiting for their protection to kick in. And so using a multi-asset approach and using... Um, you know, trying to minimize some of that decay or carry through different structures and going to the interest rate market sometimes, going to the FX market sometimes, you can give people exposure to um, and protection to this type of event or a downside protection. Most people are trying to 
protect against equity decline. But we do have some mandates where people are trying to protect against interest rate increases. Um, but most of the time, you can find better alternatives when you look beyond the obvious, right? If, sure. you know, and, and, and it's kind of intuitive, right? If everybody's buying one-month S&P puts and rolling them because it's easy, because it's liquid, because it's observable, um, you know, that's not necessarily the best way to... Um, to get your protection. Sure. Now, we're, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Garth Friesen. He's a principal at IIII Capital Management. Uh, he's author of a new book coming out. Uh, and it's an interesting discussion here on tail hedging. I mean, I know even, uh, you know, I, and I should just give you the disclosure also, we, we can't talk about specific tickers on our program. So the, uh, the, the triple, you know, the, uh, the different DTF tickers here. But um, there have been some even new adoptions of tail risk programs in traditional ETF form. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting. How do you con- how do you think about that? I mean, do you think it goes from paying a big amount, whether you're paying put premiums, where you're trying to like just buy the protection from the downside, versus the VIX, where you have these the futures market, which bakes in expectations for volatility, and then volatility actually has to be more expect higher than what's baked into the expectation, which makes that that rolling of those VIX futures very difficult to overcome the negative drag. Do you think that you can do a tail hedging program with a you know, bring the cost down. How how low do you think you could bring your annual cost down to protect from um, these risk events? And then, how much protection do you think you tend to, to be able to get? Well, that, you know, that's that's the million dollar question, yeah. and every everybody has a different approach to the market. Like we we speak to some clients that are absolutely, um, you know, don't mind spending a premium, but in exchange for spending a premium, they want much more certainty of their outcome. So if, you know, hypothetically, the S&P were to decline 25 to 30 percent over the course of a year, they would want maybe a four times payout, which is somewhat achievable and, you know, using the more traditional strategies. Other people don't want to spend anything on decay or the negative carry. And, you know, there is no holy grail here. What do you get in exchange for um, saving money on your... Uh, the premium you pay, you have to be able to take a little bit of correlation risk. And so what happens is the the certainty of your payout decreases the more you want to save money on the traditional just easy purchase of options. And so, um, you know, some people are more comfortable with that than others. And depending on what the client is trying to hedge, um, you know, they're they're more or less willing to take that. We We have some people that aren't concerned. They'll come to us and say, we're not really concerned about the first five or ten percent decline in equities, but we really care if equities drop by more than twenty percent. Yeah. In which case, you would design structures and trades in a very different fashion than if somebody says, "I just want a linear payout." Like it matters to me whether rates or credit, um, you know, move, and it matters whether equities move in a more than a five percent type range. So. You know, is there any way you could give some context for, like, let's say if you're trying to protect fully from any loss, that'll cost you 10% this year. And if you were saying, I only want to cost protect from 20% declines, that will cost me 2%. I mean, do you, do you have any sense of where those numbers actually are today? Well, it all, de- you know, like in any portfolio, it all depends yeah. on let's say the how US equities. you add it. You know, look, I can give you an example, um, you know, just the idea of some cost savings that, that can take place. Um, you know, within, there's certain... Uh, correlations that seem to take place in many different, cri- in throughout all different crises, right? We've seen it uh, in 
you know, through the European crisis, we've, you know, in 2011-12, uh, we saw it in the uh, 2008 crisis. Generally, what you see is a flight to quality um, to government bonds when uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and you see a decline in equity prices. Those two outcomes, even if it's not the movement is tick for tick, you know, over a one to three month period, you generally see rates lower and equity prices lower. But what you can do is instead of just buying an option on uh, equity prices going lower, you could do a more structured type transaction. And this isn't for individuals. This is more, you know, uh, we're, we're dealing with uh, institutions. Um, you know, you can buy a more, uh, a, a, an option that would be contingent on something else happening, such as, you know, your option on equities only kicks in if rates are below a certain level. Mm. And, you know, that option that you, uh, when you add a contingency to it, can be upwards to 50 or 70% cheaper than buying just an outright put option on equities. Yeah. And if you really believe that both those events are going to happen in some sort of crisis, then, you know, it makes sense to try to save money on your premium. And you can get the same payout, right? It's just that you need both events to happen. And if you have a high degree of confidence of both events happening, you know, that's an example of how you can save some premium on uh, when you're buying your put protection. Sure. No, it's interesting. I and mean, you talked about interest rates being, this is a fascinating topic on, on the tail hedging. And I think it's a lot of, uh, it, it does go to solving some of the key concerns people have on how do I protect myself from volatility um, and, and sharp decline to the market, which people, the more the markets go up, the more people worry about that. Um, I, you, you mentioned interest rate relative value is one of your specialties, and I'm curious, you know, given and and also given that that, that they are absolutely a negative beta asset, fixed income being this hedge, quote unquote hedge for equities, you could definitely see correlations change though, and you'd absolutely see a case um, where rates move up dramatically. I mean, let, I mean, it's hard to see the case today that rates move up dramatically, but it's theoretically possible that rates move up and equities go down at the same time. Um, is that does that come into your model today whatsoever? Do you think there's any chance rates move up? Well, there's all, uh, always a chance that that rates move up, and you know a lot of what we have to figure out is which rate, right? A lot of people like to talk about interest rates as if it's one rate, but you know we have overnight rates through thirty year rates, and you know as as we know, the, the Fed only controls the overnight rate, right? They don't control the longer rate, yeah. but it turns out that the longer rate happens to be the bigger driver of you know, economic projections. And so, you know, the, you know there, there absolutely is that possibility that rates can go up, but I'm not in, in that camp where we think that rates are, you know, we're going to have a dramatic increase of in, in rates, either in the short term or in the long term. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I just don't think we're uh, have that type of economic growth. I don't think inflation is going to be a concern where we're going to have that runaway type um yeah. you know, sell off in rates. And we've got to remember with upward sloping yield curves, a lot of higher rates is priced in. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, forget that, you know, the projections that are already baked into um, the interest rate curve have for rates going much higher. So to have, uh, you know, in order to try to profit from a higher rate environment, you have to be not higher than today's rates, but you have to be higher than those forward rates. Sure. Um, any parts of the fixed income market? I mean, if you think about that, maybe a longer term view, then do, do you think that there's, you know, a cap on the 10 year, I'd say 3%? And do you think it's going to head back, uh, you know, 
one and a half do you think we'll see below last year's one i think it was like 130 a little bit below 130 on the tenure yeah i do think that uh, the cycles that we're in tend to have momentum and we are we are have moved into a tightening cycle and we're, we're seeing um the extraordinary monetary easing that's taken place over the last five to seven years start to unwind and i think that's going to have barring some sort of exogenous shock or some very unpredicted global downturn, um, I think interest rates are going to drift higher, not just in the U.S., but eventually the European economy is going to, uh, and, and inflation is picking up there where the ECB is going to back off its quantitative easing. You know, and we've, we've come a long way in the last year or two where we're, you know, we've gone from full pedal quantitative easing to now the Fed is even talking about how it's going to unwind its balance sheet. And so, remember, there was a time period where everybody was worried about what's going to happen when the Fed stops buying, right? Well, we got through that period. Now we're talking about what happens when the the Fed, uh, you know, starts lowering its uh, or reducing its balance sheet. And obviously, there's a lot of concerns and uncertainty about it. But I don't think that's going to have be the catalyst for a real you know, bear market rates and or higher rates. Yeah, we had the taper tantrum and just the thought of that we were going to stop purchasing the bonds. We went from like one six to three percent on the ten year, and now we're at two twenty on the ten year. So it's uh, we've actually stopped purchasing. We've actually started to hike rates, and we're still seventy bips lower than just the than just that fear. Yeah, no, it, exactly. And it and I don't think the balance sheet unwind. You know, the Fed is very careful um, about how it communicates. And, you know, they're. They're doing surveys. They don't want to disappoint the market, and they understand that this is a big issue for the market. And yeah. so, I think uh, just the 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 thought of balance sheet reduction is scary to some. But it's going to, you know, in in their own words, they said it's going to be gradual and predictable. Uh, you know that you know there people jump to conclusions and think that they're all of a sudden going to start selling, right? I, I really don't see that happening. Sure. Now, w- across fixed income, uh, certainly just the 10-year treasury is not the only thing you could be buying. There's all sorts of in the high-yield bonds. There's foreign bonds, emerging market bonds. Any sense of, of where you see better value today versus others? Anything you'd really want to avoid? Yeah, we're getting a little bit concerned with the credit markets as a whole. And by credit markets, um, you know, I'm talking about IG and high-yield in particular. You know, both those markets, um, you know, the fundamentals are, you know, deteriorating and how you measure fundamentals, you know, a couple of different metrics when you look at uh, debt to EBITDA and when you look at interest coverage. Um, both of those have been declining, um, and in both in the high-yield market and in the investment-grade market. So, you know, that is uh, a little bit concerning. We've, we've had, you know, high-yield leverage, you know, in the 4.7 type range. This is the debt to EBITDA. You know that is you know up towards where we were pre-crisis. You know, in, in leading up into the um, into 2007, 2008, and you know interest coverage has also been declining, which is which is a concern. Now, higher leverage is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, right? um, you know, especially if interest rates are low. But you know, we're also in a scenario where spreads are very tight. Uh, so higher leverage without the compensation of additional spread um, is particularly concerning. And you know, one, one way to try to put together those two thoughts are looking at how much uh, spread you get per unit of leverage. And you know, when you look at both the high-yield market and the investment-grade market, 
both of those are at 15 to 20 year tights. So I would say overall generic, you know, not being sector specific or individual bond specific, there doesn't appear to be a lot of value in either the public high yield or the IG market. Um, where we do see still see some value is when you uh, remove yourself from the liquid portion um, of those markets to more the illiquid portion in structured credit, for example, where you can still buy um, legacy pieces of European uh, commercial real estate CDOs, for example, at mid to high single digits where you don't have any interest rate risk and where you have a degree of subordination below you. So we still see some value in uh, structured credit um, and less value in the more traditional credit markets. Very good. Uh, as we're getting close to the bottom of our first half hour on the discussion boards here, um, may, I may want to come back to your book a little bit and, and just give some more generic advice for, for listeners in. So you, you talked about trying to bring advice to traders, you know, from, from you know, when they first get into, you know, start their careers. What, you know, as you think about your own career being one of the, you know, being in the hedge fund business or uh, and one of the longest funds here for, for the last 30 years, talk about how you see the hedge fund industry evolving and, and maybe just from any final reflections that you would give people in their starting their career? So I, I would say a, a couple different things. Um, you know, we've hired a lot of people in the past and we've mentored a lot of people in the past. And, you know, I've seen, you know, what, what tends to work and what doesn't work. Um, and I'd say a two things. One would be, the advice would be, when you first get on a trading floor, the best thing you can do is open your ears and shut your mouth, right? It's assimilate. Um, every hedge for fund culture is different. Um, and a lot of the younger people that get on the trading floor are the type A type mentalities that super aggressive, want to, you know, land on day one, uh, making a difference. But they have to remember that everybody on that floor most likely has gone through the same process. And, you know, if you try to uh, make your mark too early, you run the risk of falling flat on your face or saying something stupid or not fully understanding the business. And you're better off just assimilating for the first three to six months before you start to try to, um, you know, make your mark. In, in. And I think that, you know, that's, I think, advice for any job. It's not just on a trading floor. It's just particularly um, relevant for a trading floor. Uh, the second piece of advice would be uh, patience. You know, a lot of people want to get into the industry and start trading right away. But this goes back to the EQ versus IQ um, argument. The IQ to trade comes relatively quickly. You, know, you learn the products, you learn the markets, you learn the technicals, you learn how to trade. But taking risk is a very different um, endeavor, right? That takes practice. That takes time. That takes maturity. And that's an emotional uh, reaction that you can only learn by, by doing. And if you start too early, hmm. uh, then it, 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 can, it can damage your career because you don't really get two or three shots at it. You get one shot at it. And I've seen people that have come into the industry anxious to get their own trading book and take their own risk before they're ready and, you know, it's cost them their career. Very good. Well, I think that's a, a good note to end on. We've been talking with uh, Garth Friesen of Triple uh, I Capital Management. He's got a new book coming. When do you, when's your book expected to be published here, Garth? 
in the next four weeks or so. It's just in the uh, copy editing stage right now. Very good. So we'll be looking for that book. Uh, repeat the title one more time for our, for our people. Bite the ass off a bear. Bite the ass off standing a bear. out on a hedge fund trading floor. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I should be saying that, but I'll, I'll let you say bite, bite the ass off a bear there now. Uh, so yeah, you've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 111. We've been great conversation with Garth Friesen of, of Triple I Capital Management. When we come back, we'll be talking with Jason Gearlock of Sunrise Capital Partners. Yeah, we'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. We'll be talking for this half hour with Jason Gearlock, who is the CEO and managing partner of Sunrise Capital Partners, a San Diego-based alternative asset management firm. It's been operating since 1980. So we've been talking to, on this program today, two hedge funds been in business for, for a very long time. Um, in his role at Sunrise, Jason, you part, you're overseeing business strategy, day-to-day operations, but also the chair of the investment committee. Uh, welcome to our program. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's talk before uh, you get into a few different topics. Why don't, maybe give us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how you got to Sunrise Capital and just any background for our listeners that you think would be helpful for, for understanding where you come from and, and, and your background there. Sure. Well, I, I followed a non-traditional path to the finance and hedge fund industry for, for certain. Um, but I think that that uh, is probably inspiring to a lot of people because many many people want to get into the space and think that they have to follow one particular path to get there. Um, my background was in law. Uh, I practiced law for almost a decade, um, doing uh, corporate litigation and, and uh, a variety of of projects for large um, kind of Fortune 500 type companies in the legal realm. So. Um, you know, I, I never rolled out of bed, you know, as a teenager in college saying, I want to work for a hedge fund or I want to be on Wall Street. I, I just kind of, you know, was really interested in, in the law and problem solving that came with the law and, and really got ensconced in that for a good decade. And then it just so happens opportunity knocked towards the end of my legal career. Uh, and it looked like a really interesting opportunity to apply my skill set in another realm. Um, and the Sunrise Opportunity presented itself in, in uh, the, kind of the mid-2000s, and I jumped at it and joined uh, the firm in early 2008. Now, what do you think they th- saw in you as from the, the legal background towards the investing background? What was it about y- you, per, t- per se, that you, you know helped you join the team there? Well, I think the, the firm was at an interesting point in its history, and they saw me as kind of, one, as someone a little younger than, than the set of people who were operating at the firm, um, someone with kind of a, a broader background and understanding of kind of business issues, risk issues, um, operational issues, compliance issues than yeah. a lot of them had. You know, most hedge funds kind of started with a person who was trading some kind of alpha generating strategy. And the whole firm kind of built around that. Many hedge funds, particularly from kind of the early era, didn't really have a business side to them at all. It was really just, you know, whomever was running the strategy and then maybe a few people to support the person running that strategy. The business was almost an afterthought. And Sunrise was in many respects that way when I joined it. They, They had done some work on the business, but they hadn't really built it out the way you need to to be competitive in kind of the modern hedge fund era. So I think what they saw is someone who was complementary to what they were good at and uh, obviously uh, energetic and, and willing to kind of jump in with both feet. 
So maybe talk about now. Now is uh, in both as at, at Sunrise, but you also are the president of the California Alternatives Investment Association. Maybe you talk a little bit about that. What you what your role is there, and how how you see that group uh, that their role in the industry. Sure. Well, w- when I came to Sunrise about a decade ago, I was you know new to finance, new to hedge funds, as I mentioned, and so I was you know grasping for opportunities to kind of network with peers, people in my same position in other firms, learn more about best practices and what other people are doing, find investors, do all the things you need to do when you kind of are new to an industry. And I was uh, lucky enough to connect with a few other uh, hedge fund um, uh, staffers in Southern California in the summer of 2010, I believe it was. And we all kind of came together and talked and did a few conference calls and all said to ourselves, boy, this is really an East Coast-centered business, which is kind of strange when you think about it, because California is you know, the largest uh, state in the union in terms of population and economy. We have tons of you know, exciting hedge funds and, and other alternative investment activities going on out here. Why don't we create maybe our own network so that we can sort of bring the game more to California? And that's what started the Cal- what was then called the California Hedge Fund Association in 2010. We put together a charter, formed a nonprofit, passed the hat around to finance it, and, and kind of got going and did a few events, did some, uh, you know, did some um, advocacy uh, with respect to some uh, regulation that was, was being considered in California and did a few other things and kind of got on the map. And before you knew it, people were, you know, reaching out and saying, how can I get involved? And, you know, seven years later, we were at 1,200 members, and we were the largest regional hedge fund association in the world, I believe. Mm. Um, then earlier this year, what we did is we pivoted to become the California Alternative Investments Association. And we did that because we really felt like we had kind of achieved all we wanted to achieve with respect to hedge funds. And we had a lot of friends and peers in the industry from private equity and fintech and real estate who had kind of said, look, you guys did a great job for hedge funds. We'd love to have an organization like this for what we do. Um, but we don't have that. You know, can, can we potentially join forces with you? And you know, we just put two and two together and said, this makes sense. We're going to keep doing what we're doing, but now we're just going to broaden the tent and hopefully bring in managed, private you know, fund managers from all these different disciplines. Because ultimately, we all are really trying to do the same thing. Right? We have a theory about how we can make money on people's money, and we're implementing that theory, and we're you know, trying to raise capital into private fund vehicles, and we're dealing with kind of similar regulatory challenges, similar technology challenges, and it made a lot of sense. So we, we, we flipped that switch and became CalAlts um, earlier this year, and so far it's, it's been great, and we're really excited about the direction we're going. That's great, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about how Sunrise distinguishes itself from the rest of the industry, so I'm going to come back to that in just in just a moment. But sure. while we're on the topic of just general uh, alternatives and hedge funds, uh, a few weeks ago we had on our program uh, two guests, uh, Ben Carlson, who writes a blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, and Nir Kesar, who runs a, an all-asset you know all asset class type of strategy. And they they had started, uh, formed this bet on Twitter where uh, Nir believes, you know, forward-looking returns on the S&P is sort of pretty low. He talks about extended valuation, CAPE ratios, and says hedge funds are going to beat the S&P 500 over the next 10 years for the the famous Buffett bet versus protege. He's you know throwing out terms there again. Now, now Nier's bet is very modest uh, just for, for a beer. 
But, um, you know, Ben took him on, on the, uh, taking the S&P side. Um, do you, do you want to weigh in on, on a view here, get involved? Um, but then also talk generally about, you know, the, maybe the, the state of the hedge fund industry itself. We have, uh, being on the West Coast there with California can't, uh, help but bring up CalPERS going away from their hedge fund allocations. I mean, what do you think the reputation brand is? And that goes to some of the same basic issues of the bet that people feel like hedge funds aren't earning their high, you know, 2% fees and, and 20% carry. Sure, sure. Um, all, all fair topics that, I, that have been um, discussed quite a bit in recent weeks. Um, look, I, I don't have a crystal ball. We at Sunrise don't have a crystal ball. Um, prediction is not something we like to do. We're, much, we're a macro shop. We're very reactive in how we invest. You know, what's going to happen is going to happen. What we want to do is have strategies that are nimble and tactical and able to hopefully find profits no matter what happens, whether markets go up or markets go down or markets kind of stay in a range. And that's really what we do. So, I, you know, is the S&P going to beat hedge funds over the next 10 years? It could. Are hedge funds going to win? They could. I, you know, I just don't know. Um, yeah. it, it's hard to know where markets going to go. Look, statistically speaking, the stock market is, is due for some kind of corrective action. I mean, it, you know, if you just look at history, it, it moves in cycles, and we're clearly near the end of an up cycle um, from any kind of you know, rational kind of view of the statistics of the matter. But, of course, statistics are just that. And, and there's always tail events. And maybe we're in a tail event where the stock market continues to, to grind upward for another three or four years. That could happen. Yeah, the market um, likes think, to make everybody know, wrong, right? It gets, uh, everybody believes exactly. we're at the tail end, so the thing is it's going to keep going. Exactly. So I think our duty as, as a hedge fund is to be prepared for whatever's going to happen. Um, you know, you can't sit around and wait five years for your strategy to work. You need to evolve, adapt, um, and and sure. be prepared to to follow the lead of the market because the market's really never wrong. The market just does what it's going to do, hmm. and you better you know be prepared to deal with it. So, you know that's my view on the on the bet piece as okay. far as you know where hedge funds are uh, and and fees and and the, you know questions about them and 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 pensions you know uh, redeeming from them. Look, statistically speaking, the average hedge fund has not performed as well over the last 10 years as it did over the previous 10-year period. That's a fact. Um, you know, what does that mean? Does it mean hedge funds are broken or they don't work or they're not valuable? No, of course not. Um, you know, there's ex- first of all, there's exceptions to every average number you'll read. There's some phenomenal hedge funds out there that have, have delivered consistently um, over the last 20 years or the last 15 years. And have earned every dollar of the fees that they've charged. And you can ask the investors, and they'll verify that. There's other hedge funds that haven't. And, you know, if, if you don't perform as a hedge fund, you will pay the price. What will happen? Investors will redeem. Um, and investors who decide to stay are probably going to ask you to reduce your fees if you're not performing as well as you want them to. The market's sure. very efficient in that sense. So, you know, I, I think... Um, you know, it, it is what it is. Hedge funds aren't going anywhere. We, the industry just reached an all-time high watermark in terms of AUM. So while it's true that some people are redeeming, there's plenty of money coming in uh, from other sources to kind of fill that, that hole. And I think the bottom line is investors globally, whether they're institutional, high net worth individual, family office, or otherwise, they need returns. They need returns. And, you know, simply 
index you know investing and hoping stock markets continue to grind upward uh, ad infinitum is not a strategy yeah um, for long-term success so you know there is a place for alternatives in your portfolio in our view at all times I think that the, the folks who try and time it um, and figure out well I need to be an alt now because alts are about to work and then I need to get out of them because they're about to not work they end up doing the worst yeah. you know it's all about balance, right? Have some of your portfolio in kind of indexed long-only stock investing because ultimately over the long haul, stocks are a great bet. We know that statistically. But you also know that at times stocks have trouble. Uh, the entire decade of the 2000s, stocks pretty much went on a path to nowhere. 2008 obviously was a disaster. So you need something in your portfolio to complement the return profile stocks are going to give you. And that's, I think, where hedge funds and alternatives come in. And I don't think that's going to change no matter whether CalPERS fires us or what fees we're charging, people need to have diversified portfolios, and I think we help them achieve that. Sure. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Jason Gerlach, uh, the CEO, managing partner of Sunrise Capital Partners. Uh, and it's sort of interesting, Jason, in, in that your background from, you know, you sort of explained your coming to Sunrise was in some ways to help bring a, a business side, thinking about the business. What would you say, you know, as you think about how you how you build that out today, um, you know, beyond even just the market's views and, and how you guys position. How, how do you think about building out your teams? Where are you making the, the most investment people-wise? And we had a little bit of conversation in the first part, you know, the rise of the machines versus the, the emotional intelligence side of, of how you, you know, be, build cohesive teams. I mean, just how would you think about framing your, your organization and how you think about the challenges that you're facing today? Those are all great questions. Um, let me answer them this way. Whether you're a hedge fund or a mutual fund or any kind of firm that's basically investing people's money and trying to earn a return on that money, the challenges are the same. They are the same. You have to do two things very well in order to to survive and thrive in this industry. One, you have to generate some kind of return that's going to get people excited, whether it's whether you want to call it beta or alpha or tactical alpha or whatever you know the, the term de jour might be. If you aren't making people money on, on their money in whatever you're doing, whether it's buying real estate, buying stocks, selling bonds, you're going you're gonna to fail, period. So you have to get that part right, and that's very hard. Beating the markets, whatever the markets are you trade, is challenging. But then second to that, you also now, in the modern era, have to run a very strong, focused uh, business that checks all the boxes in areas of compliance, technology, sales and distribution, human resources, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it, you know, there's an old joke about you know, two guys in a Bloomberg can run a hedge fund. You know, that might have been the case in 1987 or 1993, but it isn't the case in 2017. You have to have a, a proper business built around whatever it is you're doing from an investment standpoint. And frankly, in this day and age, I think it's more important to have the business right than the investing right. There are plenty of, I would call, mediocre investment firms that have tons of money under management, run beautiful businesses, market beautifully, have all the compliance boxes checked, and they, they generate so-so returns. But they're, they're okay because their business is so strong. Conversely, there's a lot of brilliant investors who generate incredible returns who can't raise a dime because they don't have the proper business infrastructure around them. So you really have to balance those two things. And the challenge is there are very few people on earth who are good at both, both sides of it. 
You know, there, there's a handful of, of legends out there who kind of got both pieces right. Jack Bogle, you know, Ray Dalio, et cetera. But it's a short, short list. Sure. The best asset management business have, you know, a really strong personality, a really capable person running the investment piece, and a really, you know, compelling you know, talented individual running the business side. And those two hopefully work together harmoniously as, a, as partners. And that's when you start to see real success stories, whether it's, you know, a, a great hedge fund like a, a Two Sigma type firm or a great kind of retail firm like a Fidelity. That's when you really start to see the sizzle. So, you know, what I look for, it, it completely depends. On the investment side, we're looking for bright people who can help us continue to generate alpha and who can f- help us figure out the next you know, problem the markets throw at us. Um, they could be um, quantitative in nature. They could be traders by nature. They could be computer programmer uh, type people, or they could have, you know, facets of each of those three. On the business side, you know, I'm looking for the same things that, you know, any business would be looking for. I'm just looking for, you know, bright, competent people who understand how to sell, uh, how to service clients, how to make sure, you know, we tick every box we need to from a compliance perspective, um, people who understand technology uh, and how to deal with, you know, things like the cloud and the, the threat posed by, um, you know, by hackers, et cetera. So it's, it's, a, it's a very dynamic business, far more than people think. They think it's just all about the trading, but the, the trading is kind of where it starts. Then, you're, then you have to focus on building a proper business around it. Yeah. And so how you think about chairing the investment committee and having probably a lot, I wonder how many people are on your committee. We had a discussion recently on the program, um, you know, in terms of the group decision-making problems versus, you know, having a a sort of dictator decision where you can make quicker decisions, but you get into the democratic decision-making process and and how you vote on on different things. Just curious your your thoughts on the investment committee and and how you guys contribute to that. Sure. So... We call it the management committee here at Sunrise, and it's, it's myself, our CIO, and my partner, Chris Stanton, and our chief research officer and my partner, Rick Slaughter. The three of us own the firm together. The three of us make all of the major business decisions together. And, you know, we sit down and communicate on basically a daily basis to talk about all things Sunrise. We'll run down a whole slate of business issues, and then we'll pivot over to the investment side and see what's going on there. Now, I, I, I get a vote on everything just about, but I generally defer to my partners because I personally am not a trader. I personally am not a macro model builder. I understand the models we, we built and how they run. I understand the trading decisions that Chris will make. But ultimately, the, the way this partnership, I think, is strong is that I kind of generally stick to my knitting, which is the business side of what we do, and they generally stick to their knitting, which is the investment side of what we do. And it's a very harmonious partnership. And, and by coming together, we're trying to just make sure we all understand the issues we face as a business, um, the, the issues we're seeing in the markets themselves as we, as we make investments and as we implement models. And hopefully, you know, three heads are better than one for making good decisions. I think Sunrise, in, its, in and of itself, one of the reasons we're still alive, having been founded back in 1980, is because the, the founders were wise enough not to make it about one person. You know, many hedge funds launched, and it's, it's whoever founded it, mm-hmm. name, capital, you know, Smith Capital, Jones Capital. This place has always been about the collective, the group, smart people sitting around a room together, doing things together. And that culture is what really drew me here a decade ago, and it's what 
what we're trying to sustain going forward. And I think it's one of the reasons we've survived and why we've basically done what very few hedge funds do, which is kind of undergo a succession plan and continue on. Myself and, and Chris Stanton are not original founders. We actually bought out two of the original founders, and Rick is the third original founder, and he stayed with us. So we've, we've kind of transitioned the firm, which is something that many hedge funds and, and older asset management firms are, are challenged with today, is that succession planning. And that's, sure. that's one of the, the things I think I really helped the firm understand and, and kind of navigate was that succession planning piece. So we got about a little bit less than two minutes left, about a minute and a half. Any closing thoughts as you think about your your firm, your role in the industry, anything you want to share with our listeners who should be looking for, for Sunrise uh, Capital as, as a solution for them? Uh, you know, I, I'm going to go a little broader than that. I think my, my thoughts are this. It's it's good sport right now to, to, to shoot at the hedge fund industry and, and throw dirt on alternatives and, 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 you know, criticize this manager for making too much money or that manager for doing X, Y, Z. But all that's noise. The, the fundamental is this. People, whether they're running pensions, running endowments, running foundations, need to have bulletproof, diversified portfolios. They can't try and figure out themselves which thing is going to work at any given time. You need to basically say, look, I know stocks are going to do this over 30 years, so I'm going to put some money here. And I know bonds are going to do this, and I'm going to put some money here. And then I need a piece of my portfolio that is going to be tactical, nimble, and do some things idiosyncratically when, when markets are doing things that we can't predict. And that's where alternatives come in. That's where firms like Sunrise come in. And that's really what you need to do. There's a, there's a pain out there that many investors have, which is they cannot stand on a day when the stock market is rallying to, to go open their book Jason, and see a few things that aren't performing. Well, I appreciate, and, uh, appreciate your final comments here. Uh, we had to wrap it up. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Uh, thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, Daniel Brunner, sound engineer. You can listen to us on the Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. 